Okay, so my task is to talk about um, the inhibitors of interleukin-12 and interleukin-23, just as a level set at the beginning, if you look to the left of this, our cartoon for interleukin-12 and interleukin-23, you can see that both of these pro-inflammatory cytokines share a P40 subunit, and then they have distinct P35 subunits in the case of interleukin-12 and P19 subunit in the case of interleukin-23. So if you wanted to block 12 and 23, you could block the P40 subunit, and if you wanted to block 23 in isolation, you could block the P19 subunit, and then these affect signaling through the uh, JAK-STAT signaling pathways. Let's see. Next slide, please. So there's a variety of uh, antibodies in the clinic that are targeting either P40 or P19. Eustachinumab we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about it in Crohn's disease and recently in ulcerative colitis. And then there's a variety of anti-P19 antibodies that are in clinical uh, development, including brazicumab, erisinkishumab, gasecumab, and mirakizumab. And finally, we won't spend much time on it, but it turns out that blocking interleukin-17, which is more downstream in this uh, pathway, uh, actually is harmful for Crohn's disease uh, and probably for ulcerative colitis for reasons that I still have to hear a cogent answer for. Next slide. So eustachinumab is a fully human IgG1 kappa monoclonal antibody. As I said, it binds to the P40 subunit shared by interleukin-12 and 23, and it's been shown to be effective for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and Crohn's disease. And let's look, next slide, uh, at the dosing. So this is kind of interesting. It was first approved for psoriasis, and the dosing is 45 milligrams, or if you weigh more than 100 kilograms, which is some of our patients with IBD, but not so many, then they get 90 milligrams as a sub-Q dose. Their load is 45 milligrams for most patients at zero and four weeks, and then every 12 weeks. And then for psoriatic arthritis, it's the same with or without uh, methotrexate. So look at Crohn's disease. It's approved for uh, an IV load of approximately 160, or sorry, 6 milligrams per kilogram IV, uh, and then eight weeks later, every eight-week dosing with 90 milligrams. So you can see that the dosing that's required for Crohn's disease is vastly higher than it is for psoriasis or for psoriatic arthritis. Next slide. Um, So the story of this uh, begins with a phase 2b trial that was published now about six years ago, uh, looking at different uh, doses, and you can see that there were uh, the most consistent effects with the 6 milligram per kilogram dose, although it wasn't entirely clear uh, whether that was absolutely the best dose as opposed to a lower dose. So that was further uh, explored in phase 3, and you can see induction of response and remission here in a pure anti-TNF failure patient population. Next slide. But that doesn't tell the whole story in terms of kind of how it feels in the clinic. So this is interesting. Here you can see the uh, drop in CDAI scores, so patient symptoms, and they're first measured at four weeks. And already you've got a lot of uh, drop, which is plateauing pretty quickly. So this is a pretty fast-acting drug, which kind of makes sense. It's an uh, anti-cytokine. Next slide. And then here you can see the drop in CRP, which is also occurring 
uh, quite quickly relative to placebo that doesn't really change, and the, it plateaus uh, pretty quickly, especially with the 6 milligram per kilogram dose. Next slide. And then in this anti-TNF refractory patient population, among patients who responded to induction therapy, if you continued ustekinumab as maintenance versus withdrawing it, you can see that you were quickly separating uh, drug from placebo and demonstrating both uh, clinical response among responding patients being maintained and clinical remission uh, being maintained. And you can see that these numbers are significant with about 75 patients per arm. Next slide. So those data were encouraging, and they informed the design of a phase three program, which included two induction trials, Unity 1 and Unity 2, and then a uh, maintenance trial. So the Unity 1 and uh, 2 patient populations, Unity 1 were patients that were not refractory to biologics, and for the most part were biologic naive. Uh, that's, sorry, Unity 2. And Unity 1 is patients that had all failed uh, anti-TNF biologics. And what you can see for the outcome measures of both response and remission, that uh, both doses of ustekinumab, uh, a fixed dose, and then the 6 milligram per kilogram dose were effective, which you sort of saw more consistently consistency with the 6 milligram per kilogram dose, which is then what's come into clinical practice. You can also see that although the differences relative to placebo are, show that the drug is effective for induction in both patient populations, that the absolute benefit is greatest in the anti-TNF naive or non-refractory patient population, very similar to what Brian just showed with vetalizumab uh, using an anti-integrin. So it looks like whatever of these mechanisms you take, anti-TNF, uh, anti-interleukin-1223, or anti-integrin, that if you're bio-naive, you will do better uh, than if you are uh, biologic failure. But this drug clearly works in the failure patients as well. And then let's get a next slide. So let's get a little sense of how quickly it works and what it affect, how it affects other things. So here you can see the changes in C-reactive protein uh, that are uh, progressively uh, declining. And then interestingly, fecal calprotectin, and you see the largest effect with the 6 milligram per kilogram dose in both patient populations for reduction in uh, fecal calprotectin from baseline. So not only do you get a symptomatic response, but pretty quickly by week six, you're seeing a significant reduction in fecal cal and CRP. Next slide. And then this is sort of an interesting uh, analysis, taking the patient diary data and looking at uh, the stool frequency uh, change by day from starting therapy after the IV dose. And here you can see that the curves are separating as quickly as a few days, and by six or seven days, you're already achieving uh, statistical significance in terms of reduction in stool frequency for the active treatment groups relative to uh, placebo. So this is really quite a fast-acting uh, agent. Next slide. And then here's abdominal pain scores. These range from zero to three, and you can see that you're already getting significant reductions in abdominal pain relative to placebo uh, within one or two days of treatment. So again, quick-acting uh, uh, drug for many patients. Next slide. So what about maintenance? So in the phase three program, the patients who had responded in either the Unity 1 or the Unity 2 trials, so the, the anti-TNF uh, failure and the anti-TNF 
uh, naive patients, all those responding patients were pooled together, stratified, and then re-randomized to continuing maintenance therapy with uh, 90 milligrams every eight weeks or every 12 weeks, uh, the way that it's done for dermatologic conditions. And what you can see is that both every eight and every 12-week dosing is effective, but there's more consistency and a larger magnitude of benefit with every eight-week dosing, which ends up being the dose that was approved uh, by the uh, FDA. So the other uh, thing to look at is the uh, anti-TNF failure patient population where the differences failed to achieve statistical significance. But that subgroup only had about 50 patients per arm. Now, remember I showed you in the phase two trial where we had 75 patients per arm in the maintenance study that it was clearly effective. So I think the the magnitude of effect here is the same. It's just slightly underpowered uh, for that endpoint. But if you look at the totality of the data, uh, it uh, indicates a good maintenance benefit in the uh, failure patients. Next slide. And then, uh, you know, we've heard from uh, Steve about therapeutic drug monitoring with anti-TNF drugs. It seems to be relevant for eustachinumab as well. And on the left, you can look at uh, the rates of remission as a function of the uh, drug uh, concentration quartile. And you can see that there's sort of a breakpoint between the first and the second quartile in terms of uh, benefit and that as you go up in the uh, drug concentration quartiles that uh, a larger fraction of the patients are being accounted for by the every every eight-week dosing. So again, supporting the concept that every eight weeks is a better dose than every 12 weeks. Then if you look over to the right, you can see the ability to suppress CRP. And here the breakpoint seems to be to be between the second and third drug concentration quartile, so drug concentration of greater than 1.05. Now, as an aside, I didn't make a slide of it, but there are there was a study from uh, Canada suggesting that you might benefit from driving drug concentrations up to five or six or something like that. This seems to be a pretty high concentration. This is a large clinical trial here, and I really think that the, the optimal drug target for eustachinumab is probably more in the one to two range and not uh, four or five. If you go for that, you're going to dose escalate a lot of patients, perhaps unnecessarily. Next slide. So what about safety? Um, Brian told you about the good safety profile of um, uh, gut-selective therapy with vedolizumab. Even though this is a systemically active drug, it has a surprisingly good safety profile as well that really doesn't look much different from placebo. So this is the overall uh, sort of picture. You can see that infections and serious infections look similar across the treatment groups. Next slide. But let's focus in on the sort of big ticket uh, uh, adverse events of interest. So in this large program with more than 1,000 patients, there were no deaths. There were no serious opportunistic infections. There was a single case of esophageal candidiasis. There was a single case of TB in a patient who had received eustachinumab 10 months earlier. So that should have been long washed out. Uh, There were some non-melanoma skin cancers, although not really a disproportionate amount in the treatment group. Um, low rate of immunogenicity, and this is using a drug-tolerant assay. So this is really a minimally immunogenic uh, drug. So this is quite a good safety profile relative to many other sort of large development programs that you see. And I think that's been our experience in practice. Next slide. 
So, you know, we're asked to position. This is always uh, tricky. So this, my colleague uh, Sid Singh at uh, UCSD published a systematic review and meta-analysis recently uh, looking at the available classes of drugs, so anti-TNFs, anti-integrin, and anti-1223 therapy. And what you can see is all of these classes of drugs are effective in biologic-naive uh, patients, the largest magnitude of effect was actually seen with the TNF blockers, but you can see the confidence intervals are quite wide as well because back in those days the clinical uh, trials were a lot smaller. But there's a very solid effect for ustekinumab in the anti-TNF naive patient population, and it has some of the advantages of good safety, rapid onset of action, uh, effect on uh, biomarkers that you saw in the previous slides. Next slide. But where I think ustekinumab really shines is in the anti-TNF failure population, and you can see a robust effect uh, at the uh, uh, row with ustekinumab with fairly narrow confidence intervals uh, showing a, a good treatment effect, a second-line therapy. Uh, there's a, a less robust effect for fetalizumab in these indirect network uh, meta-analysis comparisons in this patient population. And then up above, you can see an effect for anti-TNF. This is a bit misleading. You can see the confidence intervals are quite wide. And this was uh, restricted to patients who had previously responded to infliximab and then lost response and were treated with adalimumab, whereas with vetalizumab, and with ustekinumab, you have a number of primary non-responders in the analyses as well. So I think the, the data are most shaky here with respect uh, to um, anti-TNF switching. Next slide. So let's uh, switch gears to the future uh, targets here. You can see a study <coughs> with anti-P19 uh, uh, or anti-interleukin-23 Rizikumab, published by Bruce Sands, and just looking at the top uh, row, you can see uh, nice uh, either significant results or trends for re inducing response and remission, and a compositive, composite of clinical response plus biomarker uh, response. Next slide. And then here's, next slide please. Here's another uh, drug in this class, Rizinkizumab, data published by Brian Fagan a year or two ago, and you can see a nice dose response for inducing response and uh, remission over 12 weeks with another anti-P19 antibody. Next slide. And then if you look here at the sort of third and fourth rows, you can see endoscopic remission and endoscopic response. So this is statistically significant endoscopy findings during induction in Crohn's disease, and actually no other drug has shown a significant effect this quickly uh, in Crohn's disease, and this is in a pure anti-TNF refractory patient population. So I think this drug target, anti-interleukin-23 for uh, refractory Crohn's disease, looks to be very uh, interesting. Next slide. Let's switch gears in the last few minutes to ulcerative colitis. These are data that Bruce Sands presented at UEGW and ACG this year. Here you can see ustekinumab in a mixed population of anti-TNF naive and anti-TNF refractory patient population, uh, showing significance for both 130 milligrams and 6 milligrams per kilo IV relative to placebo for inducing remission. Next slide. And then here are the data broken out by biologic failure, and you can see that the results are significant in each of these treatment groups. So it's about zero versus uh, 10 or 11 percent for the failure patients, and about 10 percent versus 20 percent for the 
uh, non-failure uh, patients on the right. Next slide. What about other outcome measures? So endoscopic healing, or you would know this as um, probably endoscopic improvement, so a downgrading of the endoscopy score from two or three to zero or one. You can see it's significant for both treatment groups relative to placebo. And then look at the response rates, which during induction is sort of the big deal. And you can see very nice response rates with up to 62% of patients responding to the six milligram per kilogram dose. Next slide. And then this is an interesting um, sort of look into the future. So this is the first time uh, that a combined uh, COPE uh, endpoint of endoscopic improvement and uh, histology uh, have been done together. And you can see here that this composite, uh, which is what mucosal healing is going to be known uh, as in the future, combined endoscopic and histologic uh, change uh, significantly more uh, frequently occurring in the patients who received ustekinumab compared to placebo. Next slide. And then what about anti-P19? We have just one drug, mirakizumab, another uh, anti-interleukin-23 drug, and here you can see significant results for several of the doses for clinical remission relative to placebo in a mixed anti-TNF-naive and experienced population. Next slide. And over to the right, you can see it stratified according to uh, treatment history uh, with relatively larger effects in the anti-TNF-naive patients. Next slide. Next slide, please. And click once more. Once more. Okay, and here you can see clinical response uh, with significant differences for uh, all of the uh, doses of drug relative to placebo, and again, relatively larger effects in the anti-TNF-naive patient population versus the experienced patient population. Next slide. And click twice. Once more. And uh, here we have endoscopic healing, same story. The, the middle dose actually seems to be the most effective in this trial, but I think what it's really showing is a plateauing of uh, the effect, and you can see a larger effect in the naive patients relative to the placebo or to the experienced patients. Next slide. So finally, in conclusion, anti-interleukin-12 and 23 therapy with ustekinumab and anti-interleukin-23 therapy with brisicumab, risankishumab, and mirankishumab are effective for the treatment of IBD and have an excellent safety profile. The benefit of these patients in the anti-TNF failure uh, population, particularly in Crohn's disease, is very pronounced. Uh, thank you, and I'll look forward to questions when we reach the panel.